When I was a child, my brother would tell me a bedtime story about the man who murdered our father, who stabbed him in the back and cut his throat, who sat down on the Iron Throne and watched as his blood poured onto the floor. He told me other stories as well, about all the things we would do to that man. Game of Thrones, oh my god. There's dragons. Gotta watch it. You see them, there's this fight scene. Winter's coming. 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 Winter's Cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our king. Dracarys. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. The night is dark and full of terror, but we're here to shed some light on this week's Game of Thrones. Episode 2, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, written by Brian Cogman and directed by David Nutter. IMDb is currently giving this a 9.1 and Rotten Tomatoes a 94%. All right, stop. Take a deep breath. We just had our last moment of peace, our last moments to hang out, drink some wine with friends in front of the fire. What an episode. Yet again, though, not everybody loving that, the fact that it's another setup. The critics are saying what this episode lacks in forward narrative momentum, it makes up for in callbacks, intimate moments, and the promise of imminent battle, though some fans may find their patience tested. Did people forget what Game of Thrones is like? Well... Here's what I find curious, right? Last season, when we did this sort of speed up and we were flying through locations and there was a lot of action, the stuff north of the wall, there was a lot of complaints that we were missing what Game of Thrones was infamous for. These intense conversations, character development, quieter moments, some of the politics even, that are a hallmark of Game of Thrones. Now we're getting that and I feel like people are saying, where's the action? Where's the stuff that's going to happen? I think those reactions are simply because we know it's the last season. We know there's only six episodes total. It's creating anxiety. And I think that this episode purposely did that. It's building the tension that you just know the battle's right around the corner. Absolutely. In my notes, I wrote, this anxiety is killing me, (laughs) but in a good way. The whole episode I had in the back of my mind, they're right outside. They're right outside. Any second now, we're going to hear the horn. Why are you guys just bullshitting? What the hell's going on? Oh, my God. Even our characters recognizing that, right? At one point, Arya says, I'm not going to spend my last couple of hours like this. With your miserable old fools. As shits, I believe. Shits. <laughs> yeah, this is not the way I want my final minutes to be. And I think many of the characters are saying that. What do our last moments look like? What do we want that to be? You know, when Brianna's saying, I don't want to drink because I want a clear head for battle. And you can just see Tyrion's thinking, well, after the battle, there may be no more. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have this last effing drink and you're all going to drink with me. So I really liked this. In fact, I liked it a lot better than episode one. We were getting continued reunions and explorations of these characters who haven't spent time together in seasons, years, but it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like we were running through a checklist of, okay, we've got to see Arya with this person and John with that person. It just naturally unfolded 
over the course of getting ready for battle. There were still a couple of people that I felt perhaps they didn't entirely know what to do with. And those short scenes were a little odd. And there was a couple of minor gripes that I'll get to that bothered me a little bit. But for the most part, I really loved this episode. Now, it's worth saying that episode two also experienced a leak. And both times, it's the day of, just hours before it's released. This time, it was Amazon Prime in Germany, and again, was up for a couple of hours before being taken down. But, you know, that's plenty of time for tons of people to watch it. Conspiracy time. I think this has to be on purpose, because heads are going to roll if it's not, first of all. Second of all, it just creates buzz. It reminds everyone, oh, that's tonight. That's right. And then people scrounging to get to it on time, but they don't get to it on time. And and you would think, yeah, but that hurts HBO's viewership, but not the case. They announced that episode one drew 17.4 million viewers, which sets a new franchise record, passing the 16.5 million for the season seven finale. That's incredible, especially considering that this same episode was pirated nearly 55 million times in one day. So imagine that. Well, you have to think too, if you're watching a leaked episode, is the quality as good? Are there things you're missing out on? I know if that was me, I would still tune in for Mm -hmm. the regular airing of the episode. Not many shows can pull this off. But as we discussed in episode one, this is one of the last television shows where people still tune in at 9 p.m. Together, for the live airing. As a unit. Yeah. <laughs> so that 55 million times, if that many people watched it on HBO, but you have to consider that these aren't all people in countries that can actually get HBO. A lot of it is in countries that can get HBO, but get a redacted version because their government won't allow certain sexual things or, or violence. So they're getting like a chopped down Which, version. for Game of Thrones, I mean, what are you seeing? Yeah. <laughs> Just close-ups of John's face. This episode, maybe you got quite a bit. And also, Justin, our episode one podcast was pirated 65 million times. Can you believe that? Those could have been a lot of downloads. (laughs) We have some more fun facts before we get into this episode. I was surprised to find out it's only the third episode of the series with no deaths of any kind. You know, even last episode, we didn't do our in-memoriam because... Ned Umber, while very, very sad, wasn't a big character. But literally, you have complete peace for one episode here. Yeah, great peace between enemies drinking together in front of a fire. I think it's very easy to lose the scope of that. Although Tyrion does say this. A couple times. (laughs) We saw these people fighting to the death, losing loved ones. And here they are together, joking, having laughs, crying together. It's amazing. You don't see this kind of piece often on Game of Thrones. In fact, I saw a great video on IMDb breaking down the show by the numbers, some of the most interesting stats. Now, some of these are going to be approximations, big battles. Do they know how many people died? No, not really. I'm sure you're falling very short. On-screen human deaths, as in you could see them, they weren't just part of a horde, 1,211. The deadliest battle... Do you have any idea what that would have been? I mean, we've seen quite a few. I would have said Battle of the Bastards. Yeah, that was my first thought too. It turns out it was hard home. When we went north of the wall to try to bring the wildlings back, you know, that intense interaction with John and the Night King? Yeah. 100,000 people lost there. I wouldn't have said that number because there's no way John traveled over there with that many people. It was mostly wildlings that they were trying to bring back from hard home. 
So their army has at least 100,000. Many more. That's what makes this terrifying. On a smaller scale, deaths by beheading, 13. Deaths by poison, 51. Did I miss something there? (laughs) And deaths by dragon fire, 83. Well, Game of Thrones is also infamous for its nudity. Being one of the first to actually show us some male nudity, but the numbers are skewed if you look compared to female nudity. So full frontal male, only nine, whereas full breast shots, 99. Male butts, 19. Female butts, 54. All right, we need to pick those numbers back up a little bit. You just want to see John's John. Yeah, well, do they count him once or every time we see the butt? That's what I want to know. Uh, Phrases. A Lannister always pays his debts was heard six times. You know nothing, Jon Snow, six times. I I feel like we've heard that one way more. Just from us and the internet. Is that what it is? I mean, winter is coming only 15 times on screen, whereas Hodor, you heard 101, and King in the North, 88 Some other fun random facts. People that have sat the throne, literally sat on that chair. Six. Number of F-bombs dropped by the hound. (laughs) Forty. Words in Danny's official title that we were just talking about last time. Thirty-two. Wow. You got to have pretty good memory for Masandi to remember all of that. Yeah, I think she just added to it with um, bender of knees. Yeah, that's got to be in there, right? (laughs) And finally, because it's so relevant to this episode, screen time spent drinking for Tyrion. 43% of the time that you see him, he's drinking. I might have even said more. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Remember, they're not counting screen time with it in his hand. (laughs) Ah, that's a good question, too. No, I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, we needed to have a little bit of fun. Now we can get more serious. Let's talk about our opening sequence. We were told it was going to be different each episode this season. I noticed a few changes, not a lot, and I might have missed some. We mentioned the tiles, for lack of a better word, on the ground. That last episode, we're flipping over, changing from white to an icy blue headed towards the last hearth. Mm. This time, they are stationary blue, and the tiles on the way from there to Winterfell are now flipping over. They're on their way. Tonight, King continues to march south. This episode, it wasn't that different, but I can imagine that it's going to dramatically change (laughs) the next couple of episodes as they take over castles and such. When you go into the castle, the interior will change depending on the White Walkers and what they're doing. And hopefully, maybe King's Landing will change. Here's the thing. I'm hoping the White Walkers can't make it all the way down to King's Landing, right? Can they? I don't do know. Do we lose that bad where we're retreating to Lose King's or do we hold them off and somehow it shifts? I don't know where they're going with that. See, if they, let's say they do retreat. Right. In the thousands, right? And they start going down to King's Landing... And then there's Daenerys, who thought she avoided everything. And there's her army, and we're like, you can fight us, but look right behind us, guys. And Cersei's got to make the choice, or someone has to take her yeah. out, so the Golden Company fights for us. I could see this shifting, but not being finished, extending mm. down there in some way. I find it really hard to believe all of this buildup, and the White Walker situation is going to be completely resolved by next episode. I find that hard to believe, too. They can find a way to meld the politics that they're definitely stressing these first two episodes that are still very important. The Game of Thrones is still very important. I actually, believe it or not, I entered this season thinking, we're not even worrying about that anymore. But we are. The politics are real. So that leads me to say that I'm changing what I said in our prepper. I said either Danny or John are going to die. Most likely Danny. They're spending so much time with the politics. 
I don't think they can die in this war. In episode three. At least. Yeah. I agree. I think one of them's gonna die, but not till later. Yeah. In the series. And given what we heard about the dragons really not being at their peak here, could that also be a factor in retreating? We need them at full strength in order to try to finish off the Night King, Viserion. Will bringing them down south reinvigorate them in some way? Is that how they retreat John and Danny on the backs of the dragons? Will Yara's ships come back into play in order to help some people escape like she was initially proposing? There's a lot of ways this could go. She only has three, though. Only save certain people, but how many are really going to be left after that battle, too, is another question. Now, the other change that we saw, I wasn't sure at first. It seemed like the battlements of Winterfell were different, that there was more protection. In the inside the episode and behind-the-scenes videos that HBO puts out, they confirmed it was really amazing to see these prop masters have to develop all of the dragon glass (laughs) that you're seeing. That actually has to be built. And when they were up there standing on the battlements, I said, have they tipped the top of those with dragonglass? Yes, they have. They have it up top there. They have it down front. On logs, hanging. Exactly. So that if they try to attack the walls or scale the walls, some of the whites will be caught up on the dragonglass. And I believe the logs themselves, they'll drop on them. Mm, yes. I think that's great if you're dealing with humans, but how if you have a horde of them, now remember Hardhome that war, Mm -hmm. how quickly they were scaling that mountain. I think it was a mountain. A wall. That wall. It was fast. It was like ants climbing an anthill. They're dead. There's nothing human standing in their Mm -hmm. way. They literally can just pile right up on top of each other. But they mentioned that in this episode. They're never going to win the numbers game. It's only a matter of holding them off long enough until they can execute the plan, Mm -hmm. which we find out is drawing the Night King out into the open. Once you take out the leader, the rest will fall. Now, I think everybody knows that's not going to work the way they're planning it to. Of course not. But I do think it's going to be an element in defeating him for real later on. We also had a couple of Clatchers write in to give us corrections from last episode before we move into new stuff. Jason, you did mention this on our cast, and you're correct that we were having a brain fart. We couldn't remember if Brienne and the Hound had a reunion previous to this, or this was the first time they were seeing each other. I knew, like, there was somewhere in the back of my head, I was like, just don't say it, dude. Don't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of thought that, too, that... Even if they were in the dragon pit together, did they have words? It turns out they did have a few. Thank you to Christina, Crystal, and Randy who wrote in. They were having the conversation about Arya and basically where they each left her. We also had a few Clatchers write to us via Twitter as well. And thank you for not being mean about it. Appreciate that. Yes, I really love this. Even people who have differing viewpoints. So Dave wrote in talking about how we interpreted the scenes with Danny last time, saying he thinks that we misread them. He says she needed to stand by her decision, but my read on her expression when she was giving the information to Sam about his family was that she was heartbroken when she realized the amount of hurt she'd inflicted on the young man who healed her beloved Jorah. She wasn't cold at all. She was being honest and knew better than to try to take it back or soften the impact of her choices by justifying them. So after he said that, I was like, oh, did I miss that emotional expression on her face? Because that could be really key to why neither her nor Jorah were saying anything in that moment. And of course, I would love to believe that. I don't want to see Danny getting caught up in this I am the queen, you must kneel bullshit we've been seeing. We both love her as a character and want her to get on the same page with John. But I listened to another podcast who did an interview with John Bradley that plays Sam, and he was talking about the same point how one of the biggest issues in that scene for Sam was that 
Danny wasn't approaching it, let's say, the way John would. I'm sorry for your loss. This isn't something I wanted to do, but as a ruler, sometimes we have to make these really tough decisions. Jorah wasn't jumping in. There was nothing to lessen that emotional hammer for Sam. And they just sort of let him sit with it until he has to be the one running out of the room and excusing himself. Yeah, we get furthering of that, I'm sad to say, in this episode with Danny. Now, can we understand where she's coming from? And Sansa as well. We weren't trying to depict her as a villain or a bad person here. Anthony wrote in saying he can really see where she was coming from last episode. Somebody has to think about these practical elements of how do you feed an army Or what happens next, as she says here in episode two, they fought really hard to take the North back and be independent again. For a long time, they were kings in the North. They make reference to the last time a Targaryen came North with a dragon, and it was the first Stark who ever kneeled. For that reason alone, they couldn't fight a dragon, Torin Stark. So Sansa's not willing to give up on that, and there is a lot of pushback on both sides. I think what we were saying... The issue is they need to realize that, yes, those things are important, but right now there is a bigger enemy that they both share. This isn't just John's battle, as Danny says here. You know, he almost manipulated me into coming here and helping him fight that. If she wants to rule Westeros, there has to be a Westeros tomorrow. (laughs) So it would be nice to see the characters come together. And we almost had that moment between Sansa and Danny here. Almost. Uh, Yeah. It was close. And then it got ruined. And we have a wolf watch, finally. Yes! I mean, he was chilling in the background. It's so good just to see them like that. How big they are, how beautiful Ghost is. this was Ghost. Absolutely. Bringing back our staple CKC segment for a minute of wolf watch. He was just chilling. And all I kept thinking was, keep him behind the walls. He can't help that much. There's too many of them. Just keep him safe. How are they going to do that, though? Have him be the protector. Of the crypts? Of the crypts, yeah. That would be poetic. I do feel like they're setting us up for a major flip that they think people are going to be more safe putting them down there in the crypts. They're mentioning it so often. Yeah. That's got to be false, that something else happens down there. Oh, I wonder. Well, we had broached the fact that there's dead bodies down there that could be reincarnated And we've seen the Night King doesn't have to be right there. He can just raise his arms and Mm. they rise. Surely we must have thought about that, no? Well... Or is there just no time? These statues, every single one of them, they're holding on their laps an iron sword. A weapon. It has been said, I don't know how big of a deal this is, but that White Walkers don't like iron. Not that it can kill them, they just don't like it. So that's why they're all holding those iron swords on their laps in the statues as a protective barrier for them to come to life. Or if they do, could people like the little girl that we saw here who reminded, obviously, Davos of Shireen wanting to fight. What a nice But he tells her to stay in the crypt. She's going to protect the crypts. Maybe she might have to. And other people like that down there take up those iron swords. Sam's down there. Exactly. That would be crazy. I guess it'd be good TV. I just don't want to see that. I don't want to see Ned come alive. I mean, I don't want to see a lot of things that we're about to see. So (laughs) I I think though that could be a likely possibility. Speaking of likely possibility, and I'm jumping the gun here, but I might forget to bring it up. I honestly think John's going to be the one to take out the ice dragon, but his dragon's going to die in the process. And I have 40 pages of evidence. Well, well, I I have zero evidence. A lot of people are talking about that 
you know, given the names of the dragons, what could happen in the fight? I do think our dragons are fighting Viserion. One of them ends up dying. How do you draw those comparisons? I mean, in real life, both Rhaegar and Caldrogo died. So is there a way to look to that for evidence? I don't really think so. From the beginning, I've been saying, I think one of them has to make it out of this alive. But I guess in assuming Danny would be around to want to take that throne. In the new world, is there any place for dragons? Is that part of this story yet again that dragons weren't really supposed to exist and they went away thousands of years ago? Is it a mistake that three of them are back in this world and they're not really meant to be here? Is part of this rebellion to put that to bed so maybe they all have to die in the end? No. (laughs) Anyway, we'll continue looking at that and more. Let's get into our crow's eye view for this episode. We start off in the hall with Danny telling Jamie how when she was a child, her brother would tell her a bedtime story about the man who murdered their father, stabbed him in the back, and then sat the Iron Throne, and all the things they would do to him once they took back the Seven Kingdoms. We knew that Jamie was going to face this. We knew his identity as the Kingslayer was going to come into call. We also knew Tyrion was going to try to come to his defense, as he does, but Danny isn't hearing that. She's trusted him the past couple of times, and his advice has not helped her. Even Sansa is agreeing. And I'm feeling horrible. Is this going to be the thing that unites them? Jamie has attacked both of their families, and they want to have him sentenced? That would be very short-sighted. Oh, of course. But I think all it takes is Bran coming in now with the truth to push that over the edge. And maybe he knows it as well because he just says the things we do for love, which no one else is going to understand except Jamie, but then keeps his mouth shut. That was more for us, huh? So everyone's like, oh, again, probably the last time you'll see this on live television, TV viewing parties. I see it on the internet, just in a living room with 30 friends watching it. So that's definitely one of those for everyone to be like, oh, shit, son. Well, and just for Bran, too, to be like, I haven't forgotten Of course. You know, this was important, but I'm not going to hold you to this now. And they follow up that conversation later. Now, Jamie still wouldn't be safe yet here. He admits that Cersei lied to him too. And in fact, she has Euron's fleet and the Golden Company and plans to take out any survivors of the war with the dead. But he abandoned his house because this goes beyond loyalty. It's about survival. It's about defending the living. Right there, Jamie's already helping. Danny had no idea about Euron's fleet or the Golden Company, so he's already helping right there. And we had said in that scene last season, how could Cersei let him go, knowing he has this information? Surely he's going to go right north and tell them. She felt it, it didn't matter. I think she's gotten too arrogant at this point. But also exactly what Jamie's saying, shouldn't this prove it? What does it gain him to come here where he has so many enemies with this information, just prostrating himself? If he didn't actually want to fight for them, he would go anywhere else in the world right now. Still, it's looking grim until Brienne stands up to vouch for him, saying Jamie is a man of honor who defended her from rape by her captors, sacrificing his hand in the process. And in fact, Sansa wouldn't be alive at all if not for the oath he swore to Catelyn. First of all, this was very brave. And while this was a beautiful move to get Sansa's trust, it was a love letter in so many words, in Brienne's way. Yeah, I mean, if we think back to last season, Brienne basically had to fight (laughs) to be in Sansa's service. She really didn't want her there. But she kept telling her about this oath that she swore to her mother. 
in her final words, basically. And now she's proved herself time and again to the point that whatever Brienne says, Sansa's going to trust that. And Brienne knows the truth about Jamie that there's more honor in him than most people realize. And the things that he knows he did for the right reasons. He's not apologizing for killing King Ares because he was mad. He was trying to save the kingdom and the people from that terror fighting the Starks while they were in battle. He was sworn to his family, to his house, to the king's guard at that point. But there are things he knows he's done wrong and he's trying to pay penance for that now. So this is a really beautiful nonverbal interaction between him and Brienne that's only going to ramp up as the episode goes along. And it works. At this, Sansa thinks they should let him stay. John agrees that they need every man, really leaving Danny with very little choice in the matter. And you can tell she's a little upset about that, but she has to go with it. She has his sword returned to him. But privately later, she kind of takes it out on Tyrion. Well, I think at this point, it's very telling. It looks like Danny doesn't have control of this room. To her right, is a very strong Sansa who makes a a perfect statement. I trust you with my life. And if you trust him with your life by fighting alongside him, I'll trust you. But then Danny looks left to John, who's not really there mentally. Mm -mm. And you can see he was like, kind of like in class when you were just daydreaming and the teacher asks you a question. You're like, um. And I think that was kind of a test. Would he support her? Mm. And he didn't. And The frustrating thing, again, is you can see both sides of it. You can see... He was right, too. Sansa's point, and we know Jamie should be forgiven. But in Danny's opinion, she doesn't know Brienne. What does her word mean to Danny? This is the man who killed her father, who attacked the Starks, who has this notorious reputation of being a bad man. So it's not easy. I mean, poor Tyrion later, though. She's... (laughs) Danny's calling him a fool and telling him, basically, do better or I'll find someone who can. What was a wake-up call I think he needed as well? If she had continued that route, I'd be mad at Danny. But I think at that point, that's what he needed. And she needed to get that out. He's worried, though, that she's at the end of her rope because he turns to the other two and says, this job might be yours really (laughs) soon. As we mentioned, after this, Jamie goes to the heart tree to apologize to Bran. But he isn't angry anymore. He thinks if not for that moment that happened in season one, Jamie wouldn't be the man he is today and he would still be Bran Stark instead of something else. I think it's important to note the difference in Jamie's way of speaking between his talk with Bran and with the council. He was unapologetic of everything that he had done, everything they were bringing up that makes him the bad guy there. He said, I would do it again. It was war. I was defending my family. But when it came to Bran... The first words out of his mouth are, I'm sorry for what I've done. Well, yeah, that's what I was saying before. He doesn't consider those things dishonorable. He had a position. He swore oaths. But in his heart, he knows what he has done wrong. And part of that was to Bran. Of course, Bran, ever able to see the bigger picture, is like, none of that matters now. We could use you fighting as well. But when Jamie wonders about after the war, he cryptically says, how do you know there is an afterward? Oh, thanks, Bran. Yet again cryptic as ever. And one of our clatchers, Randy, wrote in with this comment. I know it's something a lot of people have been saying we have to get to it. She said it occurred to her after episode one that Bran knew Cersei's army wasn't coming north. Why didn't he say anything? She thinks the writers are having a hard time incorporating his abilities into the story. His visions could be providing the north with a great advantage. Does it make sense that he's not doing more? So I said, this is a great point. I mean, we've wondered at the extent of Bran's powers for a long time. How much can he see? The show has kind of laid out for us that he has to know what he's looking for. So if because of the personal connections, he looks to Jamie 
after last season and sees him riding north. Does that necessarily mean he went back and saw the conversation between him and Cersei and knew that that army wasn't coming north? Is it possible he saw part of those things and not others? Is that why his statements are so cryptic? He doesn't really know how everything fits together yet. The issue with that is later on in this episode where Bran basically says he knows the full intentions of the Night King. He knows what he's after and what this whole battle is about. So kind of like he knows it or he doesn't? Well, I think those are separate things. It's easy to plop it all together. You're either all-knowing or not. I don't think he can tell the future as in, well, just like you said, close your eyes, whatever you want to know, you can tell. But I think he has a connection with the Night King, so he knows those specific things. He can see segments of the future, maybe little blips, and he can see the past if he knows what he's looking for. Yeah, that doesn't mean he can put it all together in a way that makes sense for everyone else. And also, I don't think he can really spy, quote unquote, on the Night King because he's been touched by him. So he can only see from a far distance. And I'm making this up in my head, but I think he has the pieces of the puzzle. He just dumped out that puzzle box and he sees the pieces that we don't even see, but he's still putting them together. Wasn't that actually a thing a couple seasons ago when he actively tried to watch the Night King? That's when the Night King was more able to focus in on Bran. Yeah. So defensively, he had to kind of put up that wall a bit. I also think it's a possibility there are things Brand's seeing, but he's not sharing intentionally. I was going to say that too. If he knows a lot of them are going to die in this battle. How does that help? You can't right. tell them, hey, listen, man, you're going to die anyways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, kind of what was the point of saying this to Jamie at all, if that's the case? He, he really just needs to keep his mouth shut. But I could see where that would be extremely challenging. If I was Jamie, I'd get my gold hand fitted with little spikes of dragon glass. So I can just sh- throw it around like a hammer. <laughs> Coming back to the plot line here, after he speaks to Bran, Jamie reunites with Tyrion and asks him what he thinks of the queen. Is he sure about Danny? This is where Tyrion defends her, saying that she will be a good queen. The North is still wary because of what happened the last time with the Targaryens, but they'll come around. And then Jamie divulges that Cersei's pregnancy is real. I think maybe telling us as an audience it's <laughs> actually happened, people. But not to feel bad because he was fooled by her too. Tyrion thinks otherwise. He says, you always knew exactly what she was and you loved her anyway. I really love that statement. It's a way of bringing the truth home to Jamie without total judgment at the same time. I get it. You're my brother and you're here now and <laughs> that's all that matters. And I love then and later, they both muse that they can't believe they're here. Tyrion says this isn't the death he would have chosen. And if only their father could see them both now defending Winterfell. This is when we got to see the spikes at the top of the castle. And I really valued this scene. I thought it was really good to see the brothers talking again. Getting to see Tyrion in his old light a little bit, at least. The way he's speaking. A little bit of hyperbole when he speaks. A little bit of cockiness, but not really. And they made it a point where they still know each other so well. Jamie's finishing his sentences. Mm-hmm. And doing the callbacks again to season one. Absolutely. And then juxtaposed with quickly Jamie's attention is taken over to the point where Tyrion's having a whole conversation. Jamie's on By the other himself. side. <laughs> and he's looking at someone he really does love, which makes me think something about those two characters, but I'll wait till we get to them. Well, and again, things really coming full circle. So what his eyes are focused on now is the yard where Brienne is standing with Pod. Pod now being the expert that's training these young men how to fight with swords. 
we think back to the time where Pod had no idea what he was doing and Brienne was reluctantly training him. Jamie goes down to speak with her and Brienne wonders what he's doing here, why he's being so nice, what is the angle. He very honestly says he would be honored to serve under her command of the left flank in battle. So many things just laid bare. Admitting that he's not the man he used to be, this Mm. great fighter, that identity was taken from him. And we know that was partially because he risked everything to help Brienne, but it's okay. He's made peace with that. And he respects her, the leader that she should be. He's not going to come in and try to change anything. He would just be honored to fight with her. That's all he wants. And her response, I don't think she's used to being in love with someone. She doesn't know how to deal with that. She's almost uncomfortable with the fact that he's not being his typical kind of arrogant, sometimes an asshole self, to the point that she has to walk away after that. Plus, it's just like how many years has this been their typical back and forth where the banter started off mean and is what she's come to expect from a lot of people. Over time, it just kind of became their thing. And I don't think she knows how to adjust to react to this new Jamie. I don't know if she knows how to adjust to react to her new feelings. It's not new, but it's really strong now. Absolutely. Well, now we switch gears. The focus moves more to Danny. Dora comes in to privately offer her some advice, thinking she forgave him despite his failures and he should do the same for Tyrion. While it broke his heart when she named him her hand, it was the right choice. Tyrion's made mistakes, but he owns them and he learns from them. And I think that she really needed to hear that. We're going to see how it impacts her actions later on. Absolutely. I think this was a beautiful moment for Jorah. And that's one of the main reasons we put him on the MVB poll. He was one of Danny's first and only friends and advisors. So much has happened between them, so much history, but it's only fitting that this relationship should come around in the end. Of course, it's another point that made me afraid for Tyrion in the moment. Shouldn't it be him who's beside Danny right now, offering her advice, being that critical mind? What is his place? He's not really helping a lot with the battle strategy. I was very nervous until we see how that goes later on. But I think that's okay because he's not really the battle strategy guy. He's the political strategy guy. Well, he certainly tried last season and it went so badly that he's backed off a bit. But if his intelligent mind is going to be his selling point, Danny said it earlier, he needs to step up and help her and sometimes tell her the things she doesn't want to hear exactly like Jorah is doing here. I mean, at this point, it's about people and handling people, right? Because Jorah makes another suggestion and that's how she should handle Sansa. Really, I mean, it's a testament to that old saying that you're only as strong as the people you surround yourself with. Danny wouldn't have made it this far without a multitude of other people who sacrificed their lives other families, basically leaving their families, and so on. I mean, Jorah, if you recall, this we're going years back now, when he told her about his grayscale, he said, I'm going to find a way to get better, and I'm going to come back to you. And he did, against all odds. <laughs> Pretty incredible. As we said, Danny listens. She goes to speak with Sansa, who continues to justify her decision regarding Jamie. I didn't ask him to be my hand simply because he was good. I asked him to be my hand because he was good, and intelligent and ruthless when he had to be. He never should have trusted Cersei. He never should have either. That was so awesome. (laughs) Yeah. The way she said that, I was like, you go, Sansa. That was well said. There's still, though, with these back and forth little jabs power moves, finally a moment where it seems like they're going to come together. 
Danny's trying to put that aside. She says to Santa, they've both known what it's like to lead people who aren't inclined to accept a woman's rule and wonders why they're at odds with each other. Sansa starts to become honest here, thinking that men in love do stupid things and are easily manipulated. Coming to kind of the heart of it, she's worried that as smart and good and right of a ruler as John has been, he's sacrificing too much because he's blinded by his love for Danny. So many reflections that in a lot of ways she's become very Catelyn-like. And if we think back to when Rob wanted to bail out on his political marriage to one of the Frey girls to marry Talisa. Catelyn knew this was going to be a horrible mistake. I see bits of that with Sansa here. But Danny says something that puts her a little off guard. She tells her all her life her goal has been taking back the throne from the people who killed her family until she met John, and now she's helping to fight his war. In fact, he's only the second man she's ever trusted. So who really manipulated who here? And that put a smile on Sansa's face. And at that moment, I was like, oh, she's got her. Mm. Because it's true. I mean, we said before that should be bullshit. It's her war too. But those are her real feelings. They're both kind of opening up a bit more and being vulnerable. And when you get to that place, you can have more empathy and understanding. They're coming to that point of, okay, I get who you are and where you're coming from. Let's work together. But there's still that major bone of contention and Santa has to bring this up. She pushes the issue of what happens after the war. When Danny sits the Iron Throne, what will become of the North? They took it back and vowed never to bow to a ruler again. And Danny immediately turns frosty. I mean, this whole bend the knee thing is getting really out of control. But they're interrupted by the return of Theon. I just came in on my magic carpet and I'm here. <laughs> Listen, I don't mind, again, that he's here already. I love the introduction, him talking about what happened to Yara. Someone's got to cut his hair. Sansa's got to be like, listen, your hair is fucked. If he had to get (laughs) all this away so quickly, do you think he had time for a haircut? Uh, Well, and I like that he immediately turns to Sansa as his request. He, He bows to Danny, you know, gives the respect, but asking to fight for Winterfell is something he needs the Stark's permission from. He's done so much wrong to them. So I thought that was all really touching. I was a little surprised by how emotional Sansa got with him, Mm -hmm. running to hug him, tearing up. Really? I mean, there's part of me that thinks he did save her life. He helped her to get away from Ramsay and finally leave that castle when it seemed there was going to be no way out. But he also just did so many terrible things to this dark family. It is a point that we're coming to that we do have to put all of that stuff behind us and just take whatever allies we can get. I guess just the extent of not only forgiveness and taking back into the fold, but pure happiness to see him. I didn't expect it. I guess it's easy to forget all the details that he's done wrong because we've seen him suffer so much since then. Tried to bring Winterfell to the ground. Took the whole place over. Killed people they'd known and loved their whole lives. Thought he killed Bran. Allowed Ramsay to come in and take the whole thing over. Like I say, I get it. It's just a little bit tough here. But very well done. All these scenes are so well put together. They leave you with lasting emotions. And when I mean lasting, I mean up until they're not lasting anymore. You're going to be thinking of this. Well, and those were kind of longer. Now we move over to some quick jumps. Preparations happening all around Winterfell. Where I said some characters it doesn't seem they quite know what to do with. I think they struggled a little with Davos here. 
later with Beric and the Hound, a little bit with Gilly, these side characters, it's kind of like, how do they fit? You know, Davos is there giving soup out to people and telling them where to go. I like that. I we mean, have to see the nitty gritty. What's really going on? You got to feed them and you got to tell them where to go. It makes sense. It's just a character who used to hold such importance and have such purpose like Davos. It's a little like, where do I go? What do I do now? Mm-hmm. So the fact that he's the one feeding them. Yeah. But I do love his interaction with that little girl. And the callbacks are definitely there for him as he's directing people where to go. And Gilly is showing the women and children the way to the crypts. Over and over, people saying the safest place to be when the battle begins. And that just (laughs) feels like such a red flag to me. We get a glimpse inside the forge where Gendry is busy readying the dragonglass weapons when Arya comes to ask about her special weapon. Showing just enough chest. So that everyone's like, oh yeah, he's looking good now. But he's dirty from the forge, you know, it's nice. Uh, learning he has fought the whites, she presses him about the enemy, trying to figure out what are they like, what are their weaknesses. But he replies simply, they are death. And she has that great line. And right before she said that, remember I said out loud, she knows death. Yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> he's very impressed. He starts off thinking that she should be keeping herself safe. This is a different fight than the one she is used to. And then she just starts chucking those dragonglass spears. And he's like, okay, all right. She's badass. Meanwhile, outside, Grey Worm sees the reaction Masandi gets when trying to greet two girls. They essentially run from her. And they both realize there's no place for them here after the war is over. I think this is a small point that could have been overlooked, but it's one of the biggest problems that Danny is having with her leadership. It's not just that she's focused on these issues of being a conqueror and bending the knee, things that she needs to relax a little bit on, but she started on a platform of gathering these people to willingly fight for her, that she freed them from their enslavement. And she was going to bring them to a place that was better than where they came from. She was going to be a better ruler. So they followed her willingly. But all she kept thinking about was getting to Westeros, taking that birthright back, sitting the throne the way her family was supposed to. Tyrion brought this up last season. What happens after that? What is the vision for how this world is ruled? And while we don't have a lot of time for that with battle preparations, you better believe it's on the minds of the people thinking, if we make it out of this... Is there going to be a place for us here? If Danny is the new ruler, what kind of world is this going to be? And they don't know. They don't see that being a possibility to the point that they're ready to take off the minute the battle is won. Yeah, that was my response at first as well. But then I started thinking about it in the first time Danny speaks to them. She says, you're free men. You can fight with me if you want, but you're free to go. Grey Worm has found love. He's found something that I, I don't think he ever thought he would. And when this war is over, I think their kind of army will no longer be needed. Well, and it speaks a lot to the loyalty she has engendered that in such a dangerous fight, they're staying here now. They're willing to fight for her, possibly to the death. And of course, what they're thinking about is what's really important to me after this. But I'm positive that even though she said that to them, and she means it, she asked Masande a couple of times if she wanted to go back to Noth. She's hoping that they'll stay, right? That is the ultimate goal, is that I hope I'm a good enough leader that you will want to be here. It is your choice, but if she is going to be a good ruler, that's the feeling I'm sure she wants to inspire in them. So instead of being so busy, kind of telling people, this is my right, I'm going to rule, she needs to go back to what's really important. Yeah. 
helping them take back these lands and then inspiring a future someday. I just keep thinking back to where, where is Melisandre? I thought could, that was going to happen in this episode Yeah, before the big battle. She'd be the one that would at least help bring the light during the darkness. Yeah, and Beric even mentions that in the next scene. When Ed arrives with Beric and Tormund, they greet John. They share the news that the dead already took over the last hearth and they only have until sunrise before they arrive. The time clock has officially started. And then later up on the battlements, you know, when Sam's kind of pressing John, did you tell Danny yet? Um, they reflect on how far they've come. You know, it's just Ed, Sam, and John. We're used to be this mighty fighting force of the Night's Watch. Yeah, it's a beautiful contrast. And they do make it a point to remind us. Yeah, and they think now their watch begins. And later, Beric's going to mention it too. The night is about to be dark, but the Lord of Light is here. So they're pulling on those threads Mm -hmm. that were present from questions like that, but we haven't fully addressed it and come back around to it. Just in passing, we also get this other beautiful scene where Sam overhears Jorah trying to dissuade Lady Lyanna Mormont from fighting. But of course, she's going to refuse to go to the crypts. There's no way that girl isn't fighting. She's so badass. Sam goes up to tell Jorah that his father taught him how to be a man, to do what's right, and it's right for Jorah to take heart Spain and fight with it. After a little back and forth, Jorah finally agrees to wield it in Gior's memory to guard the realms of men. I think Sam made the right choice. Just as in Danny telling Tyrion that he's not a fighter, we need him for his brain. The same thing goes for Sam. He's obviously not the fighter. We need him for his brains. We need him to chronicle what's going on. And I think it means a lot for him to give up Heartsbane. But Tajora is the perfect person. Yeah, I mean, Sam tries to protest, right? I was the first person to ever kill a White Walker. I can do this. But not only that point of the swords, the other point of we had kind of wondered at characters that might have a guaranteed safety. In my speculation for the season, I thought Sam and Tyrion were two locks on being safe to the very end. And I wonder if this stay out of the battle, go to the crypts thing, even though I do think something's going to happen down there, I think they have a better chance at survival. So if this is the safety blanket for those characters, if they go down there, do they have a much better chance of making it out? Next, we come to our war table discussion, where John opens the preparation saying they have dragonglass and valyrian steel, but as we mentioned, they can't beat them in a straight fight. There's just too many. However, the Night King controls them all. If they can get him alone, they'll stand a chance. The group agrees, but thinks, how will they ever get him to expose himself? That is until Bran shares his plan. He'll come for me. He's tried before, many times, with many three-eyed ravens. Why? What does he want? An endless night. He wants to erase this world, and I am its memory. That's That's what what death death is, is, forgetting and being forgotten. And Sam thinks your stories aren't just stories. If I wanted to erase the world, I'd start with you. What does this mean? Well, all I kept thinking was, this is just reiterating the thought that we had, and many people have, that Sam is writing this story. He's making sure that people won't forget. This is what we had speculated all along, though. Surely there's a greater purpose, that the Night King doesn't want to just take over and kill everyone. He's not this one-tracked villain. This makes it sound very close to that, no? Yeah, you're right. It does make it seem like a simplified villain who just wants annihilation. I really hope that they're not going that route, that the Double Ds aren't just going to boil it down to the bad versus the good. I'm chalking this up now to Bran being a little cryptic again and only having pieces of the puzzle. 
I do like what Sam brings in that our hope to break the cycle is to make sure we remember. We brought up that was the problem as this story began. It had been so many thousands of years, people didn't even believe in the White Walkers anymore. They didn't see the purpose of the wall that was once so important and the Night's Watch was this noble group of people who had maybe the biggest job in the entire realm to keep them out. When Game of Thrones began, it was down to a place where we sent criminals, common beggars and thieves. It was kind of a joke. We saw in Sam's look at the Citadel, even they were dismissive of this. We don't know if that's for their own reasons or what. But is that a part of the Three-Eyed Raven's job? To remind everybody? Exactly. To, to hold on to things that we've all forgotten and make sure that that's still important. I would have said that if the first three-eyed raven that we met was in a tree way up north where nobody is. So he can't tell anybody <laughs> anything. Well, not in that way. But maybe he does oversee things the way he was doing and there's more to it. We know certainly Bran didn't get the full training he was supposed to to be the replacement. So maybe he's learning that now. And that's something that him and Sam need to keep communicating on when the war is done. Yeah, I'm a little discouraged with Bran. I remember back where we learned that Bran could actually speak into the past. Now, him doing that ruined a person's life, Hodor, with him screaming, hold the door. So maybe he's afraid to. But what we could really use is a Bran from the future coming in during this war table talk, coming in and saying, or, you know, don't do this. It kills you. Or he'll be coming in from this side of the wall on the dragon. Be aware of that. Maybe you should set up the, your dragons. You know, like, help him a little bit. Or at the very least, if he is the linchpin of this whole thing and the key to the world's memories, we're going to use him as bait in the battle? Well, you got to draw him out, right? <laughs> yeah, but that seems so counterintuitive. Sam is like, you are it, man. We need to preserve this order forever, but we're going to use you to lure him. <laughs> we wheel him out there. That's what I'd say. <laughs> this is so bad. What else are you going to do? To get the Night King alone? Yeah. I just think maybe the plan could be a little more thought out than that. We have Theon and the rest of the Ironborn is the only one that are going to defend him there in the Godswood. It's like the magician said, this is on the hairy line of an actual plan. <laughs> and oh dear, ever brave and self-sacrificing, Davos says him and his men will hold the rest off as long as they can. I think he knows that's a suicide mission, but he's willing to do that. Ugh. John does come in with, if this is what's happening, there's no way we're staying far from Bran. I'm keeping the dragons close enough that we can swoop in if trouble comes. He is assuming that Dragonfire is going to do it. And this is, again, perhaps another nod to the fans who have been wondering forever. We have a list of some of the things that will hurt the dead. Is Dragonfire one of them? And nobody has the answer to that. Not to mention that the Night King is on top of the Ice Dragon. So mm -hmm. it's not that easy. It's not like he's just sitting there on a horse. Absolutely not. In fact, the plan should have been one person with a dragon is going to take him on. The other person with a dragon is going to defend. You got to split those powers as much as that hurts me. Now, they have this plan about a trench that they're going to set on fire at the right moment. That sounds interesting. We didn't hear a lot more about that yet. We did see them testing it. That was pretty cool. I mean, yeah, we got to try everything we can. We got to remember there's giants. There's woolly mammoths. There's, there's so many weapons now. Are there going to be other direwolves that have died? Probably not because they weren't up north. Who the hell knows? 
He's got enough, that's for sure. I mean, even Tormund says it. We're all going to die, but at least we die together. I loved Tormund in this episode. He was great. I mean, he was the little bit of comic relief that we got. The Hound was a little bit funny too, but in a depressing way. Tormund is just so cavalier about life. He never changes. He's still the same person no matter what. I love it. And he holds that heart of the wildlings that we don't get representation for anywhere else now except for him. We're all going to get drunk and then go to battle and whatever happens, happens, you know? No, a really interesting point. After the rest of the group leaves, Tyrion stays to talk to Bran, saying he wants to hear the whole story, but we don't go back to that. I was so excited. I was like, here we go. Information dump. Finally. Right? And the man who needs to hear it, the man who hasn't had a purpose that his keen mind and intelligence surely need to serve us in some way, is going to get the answers we need out of Bran. I think during the fight next episode... We're going to get clips of them speaking at the fire. It has to be, right? That's a critical moment we have to return to. I was often wondering, how are they going to sustain an episode this long with all war? Well, if they intersperse it with information from Bran as it's unfolding, I think that would help it. Yeah, something has to break up the straight battle, I think. Well, next we move to what I call the pre-battle talks. (laughs) First, on the battlements, as you said, Arya finds the Hound and they share a drink. They reflect on how they both changed, Arya quieter now, having experienced so much more, and the Hound fighting for more than himself. When Beric joins them, the Hound wonders if he was on Arya's list. That's great. She admits he was for a while, but Beric thinks, that's okay. The Lord of Light has brought them all together now. The way he asks, too. I do feel they were a little oddly pushed in there. Like This was a strange interaction, and even Arya's like, all right, I've had enough of this, bouncing. Yeah, odd, perhaps, but real. There's often times where you find yourself standing there, and you're like, why am I here? What? Well, and of course- I don't want to be with these people. The two of them wouldn't be like sitting around the fire with the rest of them chatting. They're not those types. And then we get this move to the next scene where Arya goes to see Gendry. He's finished her weapon. Still don't know exactly what it is. It does look a bit like the spear staff thingy we'd wondered at. Yeah, I really guessed that because the drawing looked a lot shorter, but I was just assuming because she already has the Valerian steel dagger and she has a sword. What else would she need? A staff. I still think there's some possibility that she can put the Valyrian steel dagger into that in some way, that it's interchangeable. Dragonglass could go in there. Because Valyrian steel is going to be one of their most important weapons. And we're down to so few that anybody carrying one, that has to come into play later. In this way, she could fight them with it, but then take it out and fight close range with somebody with the dagger. She would have a dual purpose weapon that I think is going to be critical, especially if she's in close quarters fighting later on. I see what you're saying. I think what she's going to do is use the staff for a while. She will lose that and then pull out the dagger. Maybe she takes out one of the horsemen because the Night King and the horsemen, the main guys, can't be killed by Dragonglass, right? Only the horde. Right. Quickie update. That's a fact from the books. It looks like we forgot that on the TV show, they can die from Valerian Steel and or Dragonglass. So I think it would be pretty epic if she's one of the people to kill one of the horsemen. 
Well, I do think, coming back to this, that those with a Valyrian steel weapon are going to be up against the actual White Walkers in this fight. I think that's why it's so important. They keep going back to the few we have. How are they changing hands? Who has them now? Jamie has one. Brienne has one. Jorah got Heartsbane. Jon has Longclaw. And Arya has the dagger. Those are going to be the main battlers in some fashion while the others fight the Horde of Whites. But I think if anyone can get through the Horde, slick-like... It'd be her to get to one of the horsemen. And remember, you kill a horseman, they're walkers. So, of course, you kill the Night King, they all fall. But then he's got these little anchors out there, right? You kill one of the horsemen, all of their walkers will fall. So, it's kind of like... Dropping a... Drop of life. Yes. However, we saw those shots of Arya running through the halls. I don't think she's going to be outside on the front line. Somehow, she winds up in Winterfell, in the crypt, somewhere close Oh, maybe she lures one of the main guys, one of the horsemen inside. That would be more her style, right? I think so. Um, Did we see that in the preview or just the trailers? The season trailers. See, I I am remiss to take those in any kind of seriousness. Really? I mean, if I was the Game of Thrones, I'd throw some clips in, some extra things that we filmed to throw you off. Well, I do think that once the big battle is slowing down, there could be scenes like that. Mm. With people Very left true. over, struggling on their own. Very true. To, to take them down. Did anyone give Bran a weapon? <laughs> Something. No, man, he's chilling out there, I'm telling you, in the wheelchair in the godswood, just bait. Come get me <laughs> is the sign knife, he should have. Dragonglass knife. God. Maybe a helmet with dragonglass spikes. Oh, Where is that suit of dragonglass armor we mentioned? That'd be amazing. Because that'd be helpful. I do like that this is a callback to season one when Bran is in the woods and we think he's going to be taken by those robbers and mm-hmm. it's Theon who has to come save him. Yeah. And we've come back around to Theon defending him now. I keep thinking when this is over, after some time, should we go back and go season one again on the podcast? Would I we know, have enough listeners? I, I know, know a lot of people have done a rewatch. I oh, would, really? I would love to talk about the books at some point. People have done that too, but you haven't read them. I don't read good. It it would be a way to continue experiencing this. The TV show is done, but you haven't gotten the full story. Honestly, look, if we were talking about The Magicians and I was reading that, I think that'd be great or any other book. But I tried to read Game of Thrones and it's just too much for me. You have to get past the first couple of chapters, the first 50 pages. Even I picked that book up and put it down about 10 times. Maybe that I know the characters now, it'll be easier. I just remember saying, I don't know who these people are. They yeah. keep adding new p- people. I need a map. I need someone to, <laughs> with a diagram of who is who. But you have all that now. And you have the background knowledge that you yeah. can put it together. The only thing is, I'm reluctant to do that until we find out if and when George is writing the last two books. Maybe then we'll make that happen. Anyhow, back to this scene. Arya is pushing Gendry a little. She wants to know, was he with the Red Woman? He tells her why she wanted him in the first place, that he found out he was Robert Baratheon's bastard and she wanted his blood for a spell. But after she knows he didn't sleep with her, she's like, all right, well, how many women have you slept with? She's really trying to feel this situation out and Gendry with the man's perfect answer. Three. Uh, The the second time I watched this, I didn't notice it the first time, but the second time I really noticed how how much sexual tension was building there. And he's thinking to himself, what is the appropriate number that I'm not going to get in trouble for here that I have some experience, but I'm not a man whore. (laughs) 
I think the first time I missed it because myself, like many of our clatchers have stated, still look at her as that young girl. And yeah. we're like, no, she doesn't do that. We're weirdly <laughs> uncomfortable with, we're not going to have to see her naked, are we? This isn't really happening. Even Joe Dempsey talked about learning this scene was going to be happening and that when they first started filming, he was in his early 20s and she was barely in her teens. She was like 11, I think. So. Oh my God. Yeah, she's a 20-year-old woman now, but he's going to have a hard time getting past that barrier. Maybe GOT knew that, and that's why they only showed us a little bit of her body. I think full frontal, everyone would have been like, no, no, no. I I think it was a risk to even show any of it. I thought they were going to do like a starting to take the clothes off and cut away from the visual. I mean, I think it's an important part of what we're developing with Arya to show that she no longer is that child. We've been building that all season. She's an adult who's had these experiences, who's become hardened. She's coming into being a woman. Just like everyone else, this could be her last night on Earth. So, yeah, I want to have that experience. But let's be honest. She's done what she needs to do to prepare. She'd just be sitting there with those old guys, those grumpy old guys up top. Yeah, if these are my last moments. Let me experience something. I, I didn't have a childhood. I don't that to be it, sitting exactly. around here effing, F this and F that with the hound. I would have been that way if it was a random dude, but we have a past with this guy. We knew that was going to come back around eventually. Speaking of last moments, let's go over to those fireside conversations where Tyrion and Jamie think about the first time they were at Winterfell. Tyrion saying it was simpler then. You were a golden lion, I was a drunken whoremonger. Hmm. The perils of self-betterment. Brienne and Pod join them first, then Davos and Tormund, and they all start drinking together. Seeing the looks between Jamie and Brienne, Tormund steps up to tell them, you know they call me Giant Spain. Before that, <laughs> did you see his, the look on his face when he walked in? He was such a creeper, just staring at Brienne. Well, because he's reading it. He's so happy to see her. This yeah. is his chance. But like, then he sees Jamie sitting there, yep. and he picks up Love on triangle. it all right away. He's like, shit, Jamie, Mr. Golden Boy, Mr. Kingslayer got here first. <laughs> well, you're Kingslayer, but did you know I'm Giant Spain? And this was hilarious. I love this. I think some people thought it was over the top. I say nay. He's a wildling. This is the way he would act. Plus, anytime Tormund feels the need to show how badass he is, he brings out this effing ridiculous story about the giant. So I think that's, again, just an apropos callback. You know that was real milk that he was gulping? Yeah. I hope they didn't have to do too many takes of that. I hope not either. Jeez. But on a more serious note, Tyrion thinks it's strange. Most of them here have fought the Starks at some point, but now they're all fighting together to defend it, to defend Winterfell. Brienne thinks at least they'll die with honor, but Tyrion says they might live. He starts naming major battles they've all survived. Again, maybe the voice of the audience wanting to believe that or instilling some hope. But when they get to Brienne and Tormund learns she isn't actually a sir because of Westerosi tradition, he thinks, fuck tradition, she (laughs) should be knighted. Agreeing and reflecting that any knight can make a knight, Jaime draws his sword and tells Brienne to kneel and the situation turns serious very quick. The looks between these two actors... Amazing. Just sold this and they actually talked about how Nicola Coster Waldau zoned out at this part. He got so into character that he kind of forgot they were acting a scene. He had to ask the director, was that okay? Because I have no idea what I just did. And that read so thoroughly. It really did. There was so much, as our Clatchers would say, there was all the feelings in that scene. These lines were beautiful. He speaks the traditional knighting words. In the name of the warrior, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, 
I charge you to defend the innocent. Arise, Brienne of Tarth, a knight of the Seven Kingdoms. It should have been, in the name of the warrior, you have already been brave. In the name of the father, you have already been just, and so on. Yeah. Because of all the people we've seen, maybe besides John, she is the most knightly type of person. And that's what she kept saying that, you know, really it's not important to me because I know I'm doing it anyway, but we also know in some aspect that that hurt. She gave that look to Pod and he was kind of saying with his eyes, on some level, this is something you need. Take it. And this was a big part in the books too of knights knighting other people and how it only really meant something if the one granting it to you was an honorable, respected knight. And that comes with so many things in this episode that up until now, Jamie would be the last person. <laughs> but coming from him, it's the only way it means something to her. So I thought that was really beautiful. They both have tears in their eyes and then she rises and the room starts clapping. Oh, and she great. just breaks out into this grin. What made it not awkward was once again, Tormund just like <laughs> giddy, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's awesome. I want to hang out with him. And then we go to this amazing montage that starts off with Pod singing Jenny's song. And we go through the last characters in their final hours. Theon and Sansa eating a dinner together. Arya lying in bed with Gendry. Grey Worm kissing Missandei for a last time. And Jorah riding out. This song was beautiful. And I don't know if you knew, but they didn't know who was going to sing it. And then they remembered Daniel is a really good singer. But more about that song later on. Yeah, he struck the perfect note here. It definitely has a lot of meaning. So that's going to be our closer look coming up in this episode. But for our last scene, we go to the crypts where Danny finds John standing in front of Lyanna's statue. She reflects that everyone said her brother Rhaegar was decent and kind, a man who loved to sing and gave money to poor children, yet he raped Lyanna. She can't reconcile it. Seeing his opening, John starts to tell her the truth. Rhaegar did love Lyanna. They, they were married, married in secret. secret. After Rhaegar fell on the trident, she had a son. Robert would have murdered the baby if he ever found out, and Lyanna knew it. So the last thing she did, as she bled to death on her birthing bed, was give the boy to her brother, Ned Stark, to raise as his bastard. My name. My real name. Is Aegon Targaryen. She doesn't believe it, as we thought she might not, saying, oh, how convenient. It's your brother and your best friend that have confirmed this information. I think what's really evident is the way she reacts physically. They always say, don't pay attention to the words, pay attention to the body language. She steps back mm. a foot or two and turns her shoulder a little bit. That's closing off everything. Physical distance. Yeah. And of course, the first thoughts on her mind, if it were true, it would make him the last male heir of House Targaryen with a better claim to the Iron Throne. Why is that her first thoughts? I mean, I say why. We know why. But if they're truly in love, that wouldn't be my first thoughts. This is just the problem we keep bringing up with her. The last thing that she had saying she was meant to rule these mm -hmm. kingdoms was the fact that she was the last Targaryen because in regular Westerosi tradition, it would never go to a woman anyway. The only reason she would ever be considered is that she would be the very last of their line. That coupled with the fact that she has power. She can take things by force and with her dragons. And she struggled 
to find the balance between that's how I become ruler, but I can't become a mad king. So now she loses one last peg in that equation. Or so she thinks. I believe if she didn't react that way, John's next words would have been, but I don't care about that. Yeah, I don't want to rule. Her instant guard up cold demeanor makes John pause for a moment and then they get interrupted. Mm, Of course they do. Before they can finish the conversation, horns blare from the battlements and Tyrion looks out as the undead army approaches. So Tyrion has already had that conversation with Bran. Their look on his eyes means he knows something that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And I hope we're right that next episode we'll get the insight to Bran's mind. And I hope Bran does something, for God's sakes. So many more questions, so much to think about. But first, let's go to our Raven rating for the episode. The messages have flown. The Ravens are in. On a scale of 1 to 10, Jason, what do you give episode 2? You know what? I love this episode just as much as last, so I'm going to stick with 9.2. There's more to come, and I'm comfortable with that. To be honest with you, one part of me (laughs) wants it to just remain peaceful. But obviously, that would not make a good season ender, right? I mean, I don't want anyone to die, for God's (laughs) sakes. So I'm embracing this little moment that we have of peace. Yeah, me too. And I gave last episode a nine. I'm definitely feeling a little up from that. I enjoyed this more than the season premiere. So I'm going to go with you and give it a 9.2. Well, let's get to our digital water cooler. But before we do, we wanted to remind our Clatchers that Christina and myself do not only reside in Westeros, We also have many other podcasts that we truly love. Mr. Robot, Westworld, The Magicians, and it's been gone for a while, but it's one of our favorite shows ever, Sherlock, and plenty more. So you can check those out on our respective channels or on our main channel. Just go Coffee Clats Crew and you'll see the white image cover. That's our main channel. You won't miss anything if you subscribe to that. But if you want even more and you want to help Christina and myself out financially so we can continue to provide these podcasts, go to our website coffeeclasscrew.com and click on Patreon. Over on Patreon, we have a tier for everyone so you can find what's right for you. $1 gets you access to the community chat boards where the conversations continue, plus a discount on all the CKC gear. The $3 tier will get you all that plus a coffee break episode each month. Very interactive, a lot of games and fun questions where Jason and I sound stupid because we do so badly. (laughs) But it's so fun. It's very loose. I love it. The next tier up is the $5 that gets you all that plus a bonus episode each month. We dive into different topics, such as this month's The History of April Fool's Day, some of the best pranks ever played, and exactly what makes you so annoying based on your Zodiac sign. And finally, the $10 tier gets you all that plus a movie review. Each month we go to the theaters and see something that's new or revisit a fun throwback such as the Harry Potter series that we've been covering sporadically. We do in-depth research so that we can offer you a great discussion, some behind-the-scenes information, and we have a lot of fun. So if you really like the digital water cooler, this is more of it. Everyone is involved. People call into our phone number. People write in. It's a big family there. So you get to have more fun with the CKC podcast, and you get to know that you're helping Christine and myself out. We work really hard on these podcasts. We sacrifice a lot, and any little bit of support helps us tremendously. All right, let's move on to our Twitter poll. Every week we ask our Clatchers via at CKC Podcast, who is your MVB for this episode and what are your thoughts? This week, your options were Jamie, Brienne, Bran, and Jorah. Coming in fourth place with 9% was Jorah. We mentioned that he offered some critical advice to Danny, something that might help shift her perspective on this situation. Such an important factor right now. He's not her hand anymore, which saddens him, but he is still a loyal, trusted advisor. 
plus by the end of the episode, even though he gave up Longclaw to John so that he could have a Valyrian steel blade, he gets one back from Sam in the form of Heartsbane. And coming in at third place with 14% is Bran. We talked about how he could certainly do more, but his decision not to blow up Jamie's spot, to allow him to fight for the living, which is what he needs to do right now, and to even tell him that those actions made us both who we are today, something that's truly important. Plus, he gives some insight into the real motivation of the Night King. He offers himself up as bait to lure him in. Coming in second place, and first and second were close, with 34% is Brienne. What a major episode for her, finding it in herself to go a little against her character, stand in front of this whole hall, but for something that she sees to be truly important, to defend Jamie and make sure that he is able to stay and help them fight. Then she's rewarded with one of her secret dearest wishes to become an actual knight. Unfortunately, I am worried that anybody who gets this really great moment here has these final happy scenes in this episode. It might be because they're taken from us next episode. Those moments that Jamie and Brienne had made me feel like they summed it up. They put a little button on it and now Brienne's ready to die. Never good. And in first place with 43% is Jamie. I was wondering last week, is Jamie going to do enough next episode to win everyone's heart and get the MVB? And it looks like he did. His redemption arc almost coming fully back around. Pretty incredible. I mean, that makes me worry a little for him if I didn't know he still has unfinished business with Cersei. But actually acting like the honorable person that we knew he could be. Maybe one of the characters to move most from where we saw him in season one, episode one until present time. So it's great to see him get an MVB. Jason, who is your most valuable bannerman? I got to go Jamie as well. He showed a lot of character. And if you just take the time to remember the Jamies, and I mean plural, that we've learned to know and how much he's changed in these seasons, I truly feel like he's going to sacrifice himself or he is willing to sacrifice himself for these people. Yeah, I know this isn't that interesting, but I have to agree with you here too. I mean, closely followed by Brienne, that's a tough call because they're so intertwined in the storyline and the arcs here. But as we said, this has kind of been Brienne's character all along. She really has been a just and honorable person. This has been a lot of work for Jamie to get to that point. And Jamie gave Brienne something she's always wanted and something she's deserved for a very, very long time. But let's see what our Clatchers had to say. Once again, we got so many great responses. We're going to try to get to most of you guys. Melly says, I'm voting Bran because he explained the Night King's motives, and I think it will help advance the plot. Also, I can't have enough of those Bran memes. Of course, Kirk agrees with Melly. What? Kirk agrees with Melly? Oh my God, I've never seen that before. (laughs) (laughs) I think she has a spell on him. He says, just like Jamie, I live to follow. (laughs) Nicole surprised that Jorah didn't get more votes than he did and says she cried because of Theon and was shocked that Jorah went out of his way to stand up for Tyrion. Also freaking Podrick and the shit between Arya and Gendry. There were so many scenes I loved. But Jamie didn't even register for her. Counter to what we were saying, she still feels he didn't do enough. I think it's, uh, are you a fan of the redemption arcs? Yeah. And can you follow it enough along? There's so many beautiful moments pulling from the books here that the relationship between Jamie and Brienne was one of the most 
developed, striking, emotionally resonant. They came so far and I feel Mm. the TV show portrayed that the best out of anything. So I was happy to see that. And Nicole admittedly, and I admit this often, I'm very easy to forgive. Almost too easy. Well, I think though, while I'm still surprised that reunions and emotions towards Theon, or I still see people's points about Jamie, I think the two of them have done enough they have given enough that if anyone were to be forgiven yeah <laughs> there are two characters be. that should be vivian says while i love the moments between jamie and brienne did he just make her the first female knight of westeros <laughs> yes he did uh bran volunteered to draw out the night king helped the north solidify their battle plan and forgave jamie i hear you on that vivian but i just feel like bran should be providing a little more i'm hoping that next episode well i don't know because I feel like John's probably going to do something epic or Daenerys. But maybe Bran does something finally next episode. It'd be really nice if Bran is the one to take him down. I think we have to see more development on that front. Nikki, and this is Myth Girl, says, Where to start? Everything with Jamie and Brienne was so beautiful. And to have so many of our characters together for the War Council was epic. And um, am I rooting for Sansa over Danny? <laughs> oh my god. My feelings exactly. I think that is purposely like a ping pong match yeah. for us viewers. I had moments of that. I'm constantly Sansa, Danny, Sansa, Danny. I am for the removal of all bullshit already. <laughs> <laughs> enough is enough. She says, oh, and also ghost. ghost. Wolf watch is real. Myth girl, we're so glad to see you still with us. Sherry Ava says, Sir Jamie deserves MVB. He came alone to set right the deaths of the Mad King and Ned Stark. He confirmed Cersei's deception, declared faith in Brienne as a knight, faced Bran's admission of guilt and regret, and reunited with Tyrion. Well said. Amy voted Brienne because of the joy in her smile. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Elliot Todd says, Bran. Three-eyed raven or not, Bran chose not to reveal Jamie's prior actions, thus protecting him from the wrath of the North. Volunteered to be bait... Yeah, as we said, giving the living a chance of survival. See, I'm not thinking of him as bait. He says it himself, though. I know, but I feel like he knows something that we don't. Perhaps. I'm sure he knows a lot that we don't. Linda thinks Jamie is everything in this episode. And Dad Too Cool Tim agrees that he knighted Brienne, told the whole room he regrets nothing because all is fair in love and war, and will now serve under Brienne. Sausatak says Jorah, keeping Danny on track is extremely important at this moment. Absolutely. KB also agrees with the Jamie vote. Courtney Thompson, too, is excited to see Brienne become the first female knight, but gave her votes to Bran. Brian T. says, So many elements this week. Lots of characters realizing their petty squabbles meant nothing compared to what's coming. Props to Arya for getting her weapon and her man. That's what's up. <laughs> Elliot Todd says, Questions. Is it over already between Danny and John? Did Tyrion just rise to be Danny's second most trusted man? No, I don't think it's over between Danny and John by a long shot. This conversation needs to be finished at some point, presuming one of them don't die in this battle. And I think Danny's got a close second between Jorah and Tyrion. They are both trusted men and advisors in her life. <laughs> AB says, Tormund sucked on a giant's titties. Why is there even a pole? <laughs> <laughs> I love Sherry Ava's gift. Oh that. my That's goodness. Awesome. Perfection. Yeah, Andy also puts a write in for Tormund. Elliot Todd says after Tormund impressed Brienne with his giant spade story, questionably, in quotes, Jamie one upped him by knighting Brienne. Wonder what he would do next. 
Oh, that's so true. I didn't even think about that, the little game they're playing. But that was my suggestion. (laughs) She'd be knighted. Come on. Yeah, a lot of love for both Jamie and Tormund. Thank you to everyone for these write-ins. They are hysterical. I love getting these comments after the episode airs. I feel like we're not alone when we're watching this show. I hope you guys feel the same. And a huge thanks to the Clatchers who reviewed us this week. We read all of your reviews. There's such kind words. It means the world to us. I know I say that every time, but that's the best way I could portray the feelings we get when we read these. Starbucks Seal, Lacolia, Blahaha. Are you guys doing this just to mess with me? <laughs> I'm going to just say Connie because there's a hundred numbers after that. Elliot Todd. Elliot Todd, we saw your response to The Magicians and to this podcast. Thank you so much. Last of Six. Jimmy Dean 601 and God of the Force. Thank you guys so much. You have no idea what it means to me. Christina, at the end of the day, she says, you suck at this podcasting stuff. And I say, look at the reviews. They like us. And she's like, okay, you can stay on a little longer. No, I say, (laughs) do you need to pick me up? Let me read you the latest podcast review. That's true. So it truly does mean a lot to us. And we got some great emails with thoughts and theories that I want to bring up here. Some we've gotten to already, so thank you to everyone who I'm not giving a shout out to right now. But Zach asked us what we thought about the Robert Baratheon prophecy, something that he felt was strongly foreshadowed in the first episode that we didn't speak about. And I had to ask, I don't know what you're referring to. As steeped as I am in this lore and as much as we research, I had never heard about this before. So he was kind enough to fill me in that this refers to King Robert's prediction of future Stark deaths in the pilot episode. When Robert first arrived in Winterfell, he greeted all of the Starks, but only touched four, Ned, Catelyn, Rob, and Rickon. The four cursed, quote-unquote, by the king have all died, while the family not touched by him are still living in season eight. He wonders if this is a callback or a sign of who will survive the Battle of the Dawn. Oh, I wonder too. So I like that. That's pretty cool, right? Zuzzy is wondering if the Night King is going after the unborn child of either Danny and John or Cersei and, well, whomever, presumably Jamie. If the Night King is never dying and just keeps regenerating, kind of as we suggested, maybe he gets some sort of say or chooses who gets to replace him and would go after a child for those purposes. We had kind of tossed that around as an alternative to the John has to step up and offer himself as a sacrifice to be the next Night King, but we thought they didn't have enough time to go into if Danny's pregnant, her having a child. We think that there's a chance Cersei might lose her child. So I don't know if logistics-wise that's a possibility, but I think that somebody could maybe have to be the next Night King. Oh dear, Jenna said, did anyone else notice Christian Nairn's name in the opening credits? That's the actor who plays Hodor. Please tell me he's not going to be a White Walker. I mean, highly possible, maybe even probable that we see him as an undead. Michelle wrote in with a great point after our episode one review, where we were asking the question, could the White Walkers get to the Iron Islands or elsewhere? She says she doesn't think so because werewoods can't grow there. There's a hypothesis that the werewood trees are all connected via their root system, hence how Bran is able to view most of Westeros. The trees have not thrived in hard-to-reach places, such as the Eyrie, too high and disconnected, Dorne, and the Iron Islands, and they're not in Essos. 
Given that the were would seem to possess old magic, or perhaps even the old gods, I would hypothesize that the reach of this magic is limited to geographical areas where the werewoods are. Knowing that the White Walkers were created by old magic, I believe their power to exist or reincarnate the dead will also be limited to the reach of the werewood trees. So despite the fact that the undead have a dragon, you know, technically they could fly anywhere, or at least a certain amount of them, the Night King could fly anywhere on Viserion, she thinks that is going to be limited by the werewood network. Now, that was a point that was really stressed in the books, and it did seem that even the Three-Eyed Raven's vision was somehow connected to that. This is a big part of why the Children of the Forest carved faces into the Weirwood trees so that they would be able to see out of it and watch history. It's not something as much that they pulled into the TV show, but we do see that those trees have faces. So it could just be a point that's being held off on for right now. There's certainly a reason that Bran wants to be in the Godswood when he makes his final stand. So I think we'll get that answer really soon. And her second theory revolves around the religions of Westeros that we did talk a lot about last season. We haven't really gotten into here yet. She says it struck her that the Iron Islanders motto is what is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. Perhaps their version of a nod to death. It is conceivable their worshipping of the drowned god is their nod to that, and the Night King embodies or even serves death. She says, we also mentioned in our podcast that religions typically have some kind of servants or priests. It seems that both the Night King and the Three-Eyed Raven have superhuman powers. If the Night King appears to be a servant of death, perhaps the Three-Eyed Raven is a servant of life. Also, one of the prophecies the series only lightly touched on is the one of the Citadel, where the maesters laugh at the prophecy that Aegon Targaryen is going to be killed by the Drowned God. Since we now confirm that Jon is Aegon, and the Drowned God likely a reference to the God of Death, how would you interpret this? So I said we love to consider these major religions of this world and definitely think they will play into the bigger story. And most of them seem to all talk about the same gods or forces just from different perspectives, which makes sense because they usually revolve around dualistic forces, the light and the dark, life and death, fire and ice. It seems to show this religion with the Night King, the children of the forest are depicted as serving the light and the living, where the opposing force of the Night King, cold and death, are serving the god of death. Every religion seems to have that aspect. The Lord of Light calls him the Great Other. We have the Drowned God, possibly representing death, and what is dead can never die, just like the dead are being brought back to life here. So yeah, I think it very likely that they're all talking about that same force, and they just don't realize it, this God of death that's coming for us all. And because of our latest theory that there might need to be a replacement for the Night King, entirely possible that happens. So thank you to everyone that wrote in with theories and predictions. Make sure to keep those coming. If you have something you need to talk about, as in hear your words on the podcast, not just email, call into our voicemail at ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606. And in fact, we got a voicemail. Hey, Christina, I wanted to just um, leave you a message regarding the second image on the astrolabe in the first episode. I think this is a depiction of the Red Wedding. If you look at it, the building in the middle looks like it's the twins. The lion on the left has a symbol of a fish in his mouth. Mm. And the person on the right holding the head of the wolf is the flayed man which it looks like is representing the Boltons. So I think that this 
depiction on the astrolabe, um, since we're looking at things that may have happened, could very well be an image of the Red Wedding. Um, again, the lion with the fish in his mouth, of course, symbolizing the Tullys and the flayed man of House Bolton holding the wolf. Um, set at the twins. So just wanted to give you guys that idea and see how you thought about it. Love the show. I listen to you from Jacksonville, Florida. Always have. Um, Keep up the great work. Thanks. So thank you. That was an awesome message. And yeah, I definitely agree that this could be the Red Wedding. We had thrown out a bunch of possibilities there. At first glance, seeing that it's a lion, of course, something we all think about is the beheading of Ned at the direct hands of the Lannisters. Now, we know that the Lannisters were behind the Red (laughs) Wedding. So yeah, you think of the phrase and everything else, but really it's technically the Lannister there as well. The other part was the head being decapitated, which definitely makes you think more of Ned. But especially in the books, there was a lot of talk about how afterwards they did some really awful things to Rob's body and that they put a wolf head on top of him and rode him around the camp. And yeah, really, really terrible. So this is absolutely a point there. I missed the fact that there was a fish in the lion's mouth. That's awesome. Direct call out to that. I mean, it would be great if this was actually an amalgamation of both two of the most awful stark deaths and massacres that we've seen in the history of this story. And I'd love, love to think that was the flayed man and not the Night King because we don't want any predictions of what's coming in the future. So I'm going to go with your theory. Thank you very much for calling in with those thoughts. Yeah, I want to second everything you just said. The fact that we know for sure I mean, say for sure, 90% believe that this is a depiction of what's happened in the past. Yeah, I think that we have confirmed. The question was, was it also in some way a foreshadow for the future? But it, it really doesn't seem like it. Not at this point. I don't think so. And if there is foreshadowing, I think we're going to get it in the actual sequence that happens after that of the opening, not the astrolabe symbols. And thanks to our Clatcher, Jordan, who had the idea of the Clatchers calling in and the voicemail tell us your name, where you're calling from, and this round's on me. On to one of our favorite segments. We're going to do a closer look for this episode where we examine Jenny's song. In the episode, this was sung for us by Pod the actor's name, Daniel Portman. They play it again at the end of the episode. It's performed by Florence and the Machine. But where does this come from, you might ask? So Jason, not being a book reader, you don't really have much exposure. I mean, have you ever even heard of Jenny's song? No, I haven't. It's mentioned several times throughout the series, but in Storm of Swords, the book, the ghost of High Heart requests it to be sung to her and weeps when she hears it. It's about a woman named Jenny of Old Stones and her prince, Duncan Targaryen. So Ares II the Mad King, Danny's father, wasn't actually first in the line of succession to become king. His brother Duncan was, but he gave up his claim for love and married Jenny. This angered his family, who had planned a political marriage to Lionel Baratheon. After a brief Baratheon rebellion, Jenny was accepted into court, and she brought with her a woods witch who might have been one of the children of the forest. This song that we hear is a reference to Summerhall, a Targaryen castle and the site of a great fire that killed Aegon V and Jenny's Prince Duncan. However, among the survivors was this woods witch. In fact, based on her physical descriptions, it's likely the same woman, the ghost of Highheart, who later requests the song. Now, who was she and why was she important? She prophesied 
the whole thing about the prince who was promised. <laughs> that he would come from the line of Prince Ares and Princess Rhaella. So it's not only a story of lost love, but also a reference to one of the biggest prophecies of our series. Well, the last thing up we have is our sneak peek through the heart tree. So if you are afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time when we review episode three. For those of you still left, you probably realize by now we don't have the episode titles before they happen. We know these things get switched around a lot when we first discuss possible titles. Episode two had said the rightful queen and was obviously here changed to a knight of the seven kingdoms. But the guess for episode three was winter is here. And I think that could still be a likely title given everything we expect to unfold next episode. I think next episode is titled, Oh Shit. <laughs> Winds of Winter is something people had talked about before because they thought the final episode might be a dream of spring. That's a nod to George's last two books that will come out hopefully sometime ever. In the preview, we see Sansa saying, The most heroic thing we can do now is look truth in the face. John says, the Night King is coming. There's a lot of people pulling blades, knocking arrows, just getting ready to fight, and then Brienne yells a battle cry. Uh, I'm going to need everyone at the digital water cooler to hold hands next Wednesday because we're going to need each other to get through this shit. Clatchers, thank you so much for joining us for this long episode. We might have to split these up. We have so many Clatchers comments, and they're all so valuable to us. We'll see what we can figure out for next week. Patreon members, this weekend we will be releasing our Coffee Break episode. It's really fun. It's about Disney movies. You guys challenge us. And sometimes win. And many times win. To quotes from Disney movies, we didn't even know were Disney movies. It's a really fun time, so check that out. If you haven't joined us yet, now's the time to do it. If that's not your bag, we know all of you guys at least sometimes shop on Amazon. So next time you're going to go to Amazon, first go to coffeeclatchcrew.com and that's Clatch with a K, click on our Amazon link, do your shopping. It doesn't cost you any more. It just makes that huge company, Amazon, ruler of the world, <laughs> the golden company, pay us a little bit of money for bringing you guys there. It's just another way you can help us out. Kirk, thank you so much for the scotch. Till next time, this round's on me. This is Jordan from Dallas, Texas. This round is on me. The big woman's still here. This round is on me. <laughs> Try again.